Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week, we're going to be looking at love. Today's guest is the features director at Red Magazine and the creator of acclaimed newsletter, Conversations on Love, and also a Sunday Times bestselling author of a book of the same name. So without further ado, let me introduce Natasha Lon. Hello. Hi, Clemmy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for sitting through that bit. Although it's a, a kind of nice thing, it's also, I find it absolutely excruciating. No, I feel sorry for you because I just hate doing the intro. Like, especially when I'm doing, I think it's so difficult. I always feel really awkward when I'm introducing other people for some reason. Well, I had actually had been doing the intro separately and then actually I was there for this thing where they're kind of hanging over my head. So now I've forced myself to lean into this bit of pain, but at least it's all in the flow of the podcast, you know. So you've got, it's highs and lows. So I always start with three very important questions. How are you really? What's your star sign? And what's your favourite biscuit? How am I really? I actually, I've um, kind of emerged from a period of um, sickness in our house where all three of us had either norovirus or gastroenteritis or something. Um, and then my daughter's at nursery, so she just picked up everything, as you know, because we've already had to reschedule this. So I am actually feeling as if a cloud has lifted and I've got that sort of high of feeling yeah. physically well again. That um, You know, after you've had that period of sickness, a normal day, just sort of even taking out the bins, you're like, I feel well. So that question has come to me at a good time because yeah. I am feeling very grateful for my body and to not be throwing up. <laughs> a norovirus with a child or with everyone. There are moments in that and you're just like, how did my life come to this? Because this is so bleak. And, and speaking of love, the midst of the sickness was actually our wedding anniversary. So it was really <laughs> one of those moments where you're like, my life yeah. has changed so much. Um, and I was being sick on the loo downstairs and my husband was if I can say that in the loo upstairs and the baby was crying so but that is what those vows are about you know it's it's so disconnected it's so funny when you've been married we've been married almost 11 years and when you go to weddings later on in it just that the thing that you think you're committing to which is in the topic of love I suppose is so far away from the reality of what it is for better and worse and actually there was um a woman I interviewed called Lucy Kalanithi in the book she said to me now when she, cause she, she sadly lost her husband or her husband died, I should say. And um, she said now when she listens to the vows and she used to watch a wedding and think, oh, the kiss is the most romantic part and isn't this beautiful. And now when she hears in sickness and in health, mm. she understands how beautiful it is that you're standing there knowing that one of you will outlive the other or that one of you will get sick or or that all these things are ahead of you and you're sort of standing there not knowing anything and mm. agreeing to take that leap of faith anyway and I certainly feel like that when I'm at weddings now it's, it's an insane commitment isn't it yeah and it's it, it requires but insanely massive yeah and it requires us there's such a it's sort of crazy to me that you do it not knowing so much, but you do it with such a sense of conviction at the time. Yeah. I, I often say that we got married at 28 when you're under some kind of belief that you're a grown-up. And I just think you, you, were, you were just a very big child with yeah not much responsibility and quite a lot of fun to be had. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. And 
what can you do? That's where we're taught that it's quite a common age to get married. I didn't think anything of it. But maybe I always think it's a bit like starting a business. If you knew about the tough bits of of being a business owner or a marriage, you you wouldn't do it. You You need a certain romantic idealism, I think, to commit to it. Well, also now something I think about all the time, because it's sort of similar with a child, isn't it? That you, yeah. you're, you're choosing something and you can never know what it will be. And like you're choosing a person to marry and you never know how they're going to change or how you're going to change. Mm. But um, something that author Sheila Hetty said to me, which now helps me with all my decisions, is she's like, it's not the choice you make that makes your life meaningful it's the meaning that you choose to apply to it from then on. So you could choose the perfect person or what you think Mm. is the perfect person to marry, but if you're not then going to show up for them and if you're not going to find forgiveness and humour and you're not going to keep making a decision to love them any day, then it will be terrible. And, you know, if you decide to have kids or you decide not to have kids, your life could be meaningful either way. It's just how you choose to apply the meaning to it that sounds a bit wanky but but... no no it's so true because I'm thinking about like not our parents generation and not even maybe our grandparents generation where it was definitely you're married and you're committed to it and there were there are flaws in that but actually that idea that we are you're going to stick at it no matter what is does play into that lens you know I do ask myself do we give up too easily on marriage now or is or is that exactly right if you're not happy you should follow that through and it's and it's very difficult to know isn't it some people one um author i spoke to said that for her marriage sort of took away the escape hatch in her mind so that when things got really tough the first thought wouldn't be how do i get out of this marriage the first thought would be okay how are we going to get through this but i don't know because it's you know, divorce, you can still get divorced fairly easily. So Mm. if you're miserable, for me, I don't think that that would make me stay. I think it's not really about marriage or, or a lack of marriage. It's more about accepting there will be always periods when we don't feel in love. And that actually that doesn't mean that it's not a good relationship. I think from, from, exploring love for so long I'm now much more realistic and pragmatic about the fact that there will be weeks months maybe even years in a course of a life where I'll find my partner incredibly frustrating and annoying Mm. at points and maybe feel stifled and maybe contemplate what life would be like if I had more space but that's just a natural part of being Mm. close to anyone actually um Alain de Botton said to me a really good model is how we love our kids and we say they're so annoying I need space from them I'm so tired of them I'm so bored of them and we can say all those things without thinking that it means we don't love them wow so and, true and, and we should really get better about being able to say the same things about our partners and actually as you were speaking I was thinking something I don't think about often enough is that for times my partner might find me annoying and stifling and irritating and I wouldn't expect him to ditch me just because I was in a in a less good part of phase of myself and yet we're not I'm not always quick to remember that in reverse but the, the child the child thing is such a good example we I have no problem with saying it's the best hardest thing that's ever happened to me and yeah I guess long-term relationships are exactly the same but yeah, really, it's so interesting, isn't it? 
I haven't actually asked you my can I ask you my other two questions I'll end up thinking what star sign is she and what is her favorite biscuit? okay well you can't judge me too much on this because I know they get a bad rep but um I'm a Gemini and which actually Candice Carty Williams who I interviewed in the book she she we had a long discussion because she she was like Gemini you know people have a really strong reaction to it but your, my understanding of Gemini's is they're very good at seeing loads of things and kind of finding the thread through them, which makes perfect sense to you. Yeah, and I guess it's a lot, you know, the kind of two personality things is a lot about, well, for me, I understand it's a lot about being adapting to different people and being mm-hmm. able to, like, inhabit different parts of yourself around different people. And I don't know, there, there's um, there's many different you know if you're are you into kind of astrology and the, I, and the thing is I always say I didn't think I was I started being into it in a kind of taking the mick kind of way and then it's drawn me more in yes I am it's probably this because there's so many complications isn't it about your risings all these different yeah. things and when I look at my chart as a whole I'm like this is so accurate but when I look at the traits of a Gemini I don't always yeah. feel like it's accurate but what are your what are your Virgo and Capricorn Oh, so wowzers. What about you? What star sign are you? I'm a Pisces, so super emotional and creative, but um, Libra rising, so that makes me front up as a bit more chilled and breezing through life than I actually am. And then I'm an Aries moon, which means I'm very all guns blazing, but that doesn't work very well with my sensitive Pisces sign. So I'm kind of forever going and then freaking out about it. <laughs> In a nutshell. But there you go. Everyone's like, shut up about the astrology. Everyone can agree that it's important to know someone's favourite biscuit, though. This is so hard. I um, I would say custard cream. That's sick. It's a nostalgia. I used, used to have it in the sick form room at school. And I think I just used to eat like five, seven of them at a time. Um, so maybe it's a nostalgic thing. Nostalgic yeah. comfort. Yeah. Like, but- you're never disappointed if you see a custard cream in a, in a biscuit tin, are you? No. What's your favourite biscuit? I like, not dissimilar, those Fox's Crunch Creams, which is kind of like a tarted up version of a, yeah, I mean, they're really great. But the problem is I ask this in every episode and then all that happens is I finish and I get the adrenaline drop from recording and then I think, oh, what will solve it is ramming loads of biscuits in my mouth. So let's, well, I mean, I feel like we went straight in on it, but tell me how Conversations on Love started and and what you were hoping to set out to do with it. So um, it came about, I would say, I guess all of us are obsessed with love, aren't we? It's like from the very beginning, it's something that um, I think we're eternally fascinated by, and I certainly was. But I think what surprised me is that I had spent years reading about love, dreaming about love, thinking about love. And when I, I suppose in my 30s, I started to realise that what I was obsessing over wasn't love. It was infatuation, longing, the sort of tumultuous anxiety, really, of lusting after people who... or relationships that I couldn't have or people that I couldn't have um and it it was sort of shocking to me that I had spent so long thinking about this subject and yet I had misunderstood what love was entirely and also somewhat embarrassingly realizing how ego-led my approach to love had been and how all I really had ever thought about was 
why doesn't anyone love me? When will I find someone to love me? Who will love me? It was just all about how I could be loved. And I spent very little time thinking about what it would mean to love another person or Mm. actually how rewarding it would be to give love rather than to just receive it. So I started to understand a lot of this was linked back to my fixation on romantic love as the peak above all other forms of love and that was kind of feeding into a lot of the other problems and also just this real fear of being alone and and this belief that I held that I would always be alone and that that was something I was terrified and was influencing everything so really all my own um, mistakes in love and confusions just led me to think hang on this topic is at the center of life why have I spent so little time looking into what it really is and also how to contribute to it and get better at it rather than just waiting for it to happen to me? But it, I, I have well, a few things I want to say. Good, massive admiration for you because you're trying to um, understand the, un, un, the thing that cannot be understood. But actually, by your book and your newsletters, you, you do throw some understanding of it but I love that bit is it um who you dedicated what's your dedication on your book um oh I mean the Pisces in me cannot handle that but that is it's such a thing isn't it because we think that I'm going around in circles I was going to say because we think a life without love is valueless which essentially it is but it doesn't mean that a life should revolve around a relationship and that I think is a really important thing that you cut up what our idea of love is and it isn't yeah someone necessarily to be your partner through everything is it and what was remarkable to me and again that was sort of why I started the newsletter and then why I started the book and kind of thinking about it in a deeper way was that I was someone who was obsessed with romantic love and did feel like once I found it, that would be almost like the finishing line somehow. Mm-hmm. And so when I was then trying to conceive after a miscarriage, I was so surprised to find that then I was overlooking the romantic relationship I'd found. And all of a sudden, this thing that I'd spent my whole life searching for was not enough. And I was like, I will only be happy if I can have a baby. And so I was like, hang on. There are a lot of parallels between how I was sort of so consumed with finding a relationship when I was single and trying to have a baby. It it was, of course, it's very difficult in those situations to long for love. And I think that I tried to show, you know, you don't have to get over that and be happy with it. It's really, really difficult. But what I was doing was sort of ignoring or shutting out any other form of love in my life and saying I will be completely miserable unless this one form of love happens um, so yeah I wanted to try and understand how we can live through those periods of longing and allow ourselves to feel sad and find compassion for ourselves but also not completely overlook all the other love that's in our lives yeah because that's the thing you, you do become blindsided don't you and I'm wondering as you were talking there's an element of control, isn't there? You're, you're basically trying to find a solution for something that is the alchemy of life almost. You can't, you can't control or research or plan your way into love, I don't think. No, and I think, for me, what I found helpful was understanding that in those periods, 
it was okay to feel sad, but what was unhelpful was me sort of hanging this extra layer of shame on the situation. So when I was single, not just thinking, oh, I'm feeling a bit sad because I want to meet a partner and I haven't, it was thinking, I am a sh there is something wrong with me as a person, I am bad, I am unlovable because I haven't met someone. And the same with trying to conceive rather than thinking, I feel really sad because I've lost a baby and I'm struggling to get pregnant. I layered on the shame of thinking I'm bad at womanhood and I am a mm. shameful person, my body's fair. So it's sort of separating feeling sad from sort of draping more shame over yourself in the longing. And, and as a, it's very hard not to, but the, it's a reflection on you because that's, that's what the mind goes to, doesn't it? I'm just, there's a train going to go past one second. Yeah, that, that I haven't found a partner because it's something about me. I haven't had a baby because it's something lacking in me. When neither of those things are true, it's, it, it's that, yeah, sometimes things just don't work out. And, and also, I think I was, again, it's the sort of ego thing. I entered that self-pitying state because it sort of felt like, particularly when I was single, I was the only one in my group of friends who hadn't met. Mm -hmm. Why me? And actually really pulling back from that and, and understanding that this is just a very common situation for many people it's really difficult to find somebody and dating can be awful <laughs> and um you will get rejected and actually that is just part and parcel of looking for love rather than a sign that there's something wrong with you as a person there's a, a bit in the book where you talk about the idea of, of dating and actually where it's gone for me, I was kind of before the internet dating revolution, which shows me shows how well that was. I haven't really ever done proper dating, but that idea of the longer you're single, the more you show up at a date, and the person sitting in front of you has got to like be the version of all your imagined futures. And then fundamentally, of course, they're going to fail on that because how can they possibly? And I think that was a really interesting thing to to land. And I also now think it's it's completely crazy that you would expect from two three hours of a drink that you can tell anything and I would be so fixated on whether that person was right or wrong or, or whatever rather than thinking gosh I hope they don't judge me based on that three hours because I don't think I've really shown them anything of who I am as I'm sort of wheeling out the same family stories and and trying to create a certain version of myself which has little to do with Oops, sorry, with who I am. And actually, if you were going into that date thinking, you know what, I'm going to go and meet another person. Maybe we'll just have a nice chat tonight. Maybe we'll go on to be friends. You know, love being so far down the line on that. Because if you, and actually I want to talk about platonic friendships. I think it's so important that we underestimate those. Often, sometimes you meet a new friend and you just it's just magic and you get on straight away but so many of my best friends have become my best friends through time and experience and stuff we stood by one another through and and yet we don't apply that same lens when we're looking for romantic love and that's what's so hard isn't it because if you're lucky enough to meet someone well, where did you meet your or did you meet uh, your... I went out with his friend at university oh <laughs> so but were you at uni together yeah no but I mean so yeah basically you know, through university, which is kind of a very classic well, situation. I, it would have been wonderful 
for me, if I had met someone at university or in a job or at in a situation where you can actually just spend a lot of time with someone without the pressure of, mm. of trying to figure out. But in my situation, I didn't actually fancy such a word where, but I didn't, after the first date, know that I was, that, that, that Dan was going to be somebody who I wanted to go out with. I, I really wasn't sure. I wasn't, I never thought definitely no but mm. I would be sort of saying to my friends oh I'm kind of dating this teacher I'm not sure if it's going anywhere should I end it or should I just keep going on another date and see and now I wonder whether that's because I hadn't had much experience of real love beginning and I had always been used to this sort of intoxicating rush mm. and so when somebody when I was sort of getting to know someone and love was revealing itself to more slowly I almost didn't recognize it and mm. and that's scary to me now and I guess wow. in, in the book I don't want to pretend that we can ever avoid mistakes in love and I think that you know a lot of this stuff is like teenage 20 something rite of passage but what was scary to me is that I kind of continued in the template for too long and so I very nearly could have missed real love because I was too intoxicated with my fantasy of it. And also I mean, this on another episode I did with Dr. Sophie, if you know Dr. Sophie, just a man for being human. But that the idea, you know, those attachment cycles of thinking that obsession and lust is love. And that, and as you're exactly pointing out, for me, my experience of, of finding my long term partner, it was the most easy, not particularly exciting, very safe feeling experience, which isn't what we've been led to believe you know and yeah it felt easy but not fireworks and I don't, I don't mean that in any disrespect to him it's just the, but you can't have fireworks for the rest of, well maybe you can but what I have been surprised by is while I always understood long-term love to be this sort of safe companionship I and, and you know the falling in love was the beginning bit I certainly feel that I have been falling in love at different points and at different times over and over in many different ways. And there's a way in which, as new parents, our relationship has been tested, but we have also fallen in love in a deeper way as well. And there was a way when we were trying to conceive that there, that there was points that we were struggling, but we also fell in love again then in an intense way. And I think in a long-term relationship, there'll be so many different versions of each of you that will keep coming up that, of course, you're going to be falling in love again and again because those new versions of yourself will be meeting. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had known that, that actually the thrill is not the beginning. There can be thrills and newness and mystery after many years, well, six years in so far for me. You can tell me in the next uh, <laughs> in Yeah, it's, it's different. It, yeah, and I think because we don't put the word love to some of those bits, which, as I mean, Anna Whitehouse and Matt, her husband who wrote, it's another train going by, Anna Whitehouse and Matt who wrote um, a book about happiness, she said, oh, we didn't fall in love at the point when we made our vows, it's through the dark bits that, that put a relationship together. It's through miscarriage and and loss and redundancy that that that's where like the f true foundations of love are, I guess. And and, it, and as you say, a newborn baby, when you're saying things, things are coming out of your mouth that you never expect, and you're fighting over who's the most tired. But if you can have it stand by each other through that, I suppose that's the 
that's the amazing stuff I guess there's so many different things I've learned from looking at all of this more closely but when we say fall in love at the beginning it sounds like you almost you fall and you get to a state that you've reached it's like love completed and you're there (laughs) whereas of course there is never a bottom and there's never an end it's really just something that you contribute to every day so the falling there's never you don't fall in love until you get there you're still and and actually falling is maybe not the right word it's um there's a philosopher called Eric Fromm and he calls it standing in love because he said it's not something that's you fall and it's beyond your control and you you know it's not some it's actually something that requires self-possession and Mm. choice and a bit of your control um and so maybe yeah maybe standing in love is a is a better way to describe it and actually the older I get the more I understand which circles back to some of your older stuff that the most loving relationships are the ones where I I stand as myself the most fully I think it goes the same with any kind of relationship friendships as well where the where it becomes very blurry and you kind of amalgamate into a version of the other person can feel amazing and heady at the time but actually yeah I do believe the best relationships is where it's two people choosing to stand beside one another rather than be yeah together in the purest sense I guess annoyingly love does require a lot of self-possession it does no well well I went into it thinking oh these people treated me badly or that actually I realized a lot of it is about sifting through your own emotions first and um, trying to catch yourself before you jump further into a fight or just Mm. always trying to be conscious enough to not say the mean thing. Or even if you say the mean thing, apologize and explain why you were really upset. All this stuff, it's annoying that when you realize it comes down to you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's why parental love is, is the most extreme version of that because, it, it, of course, it's unbelievably rewarding, but it, it takes so much of, yeah, decisions on your part of how you're going to conduct yourself in any situation is how it's formed. I mean, yeah. And in the beginning, love, it, you're not getting much back. Well, so long. <laughs> smile, yeah, smiles and laughs. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is why for many, for all of us, that first chapter is so bizarre because it's a version of love which is take, 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 take from them. And I know it's what you wanted, it's what you signed up for, but it's we've never really had any other version of that. And in fact, Alanda Botton says that love is searching for that wholeness that your parents filled in when you were a baby needing all its needs. Mm, mm, not easy. It's not easy. It's, it's really, it's really brutal. It's wonderful, but it's brutal. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to really hold on to that thought that we don't question it, even when it's in its most difficult form, and we know that we're going to love our children forever. So I think it's really important to remember that with loads of, with all our relationships. I'm interested to know what you learned from your friendships about love. Well, in the. Um... In the middle part of the book, which is about sustaining love, so that was when I was really, the personal point in my own life I was writing, that was just finding it really hard after miscarrying, being around friends who were pregnant or had babies and really trying to reconcile. I guess that was the surface of it, but really on on a bigger scale, trying to understand how you sustain friendships when your life's 
enter quite different stages and mm. one of you may be able to give more than the other is able to at that moment and how do you bridge the gap um and what i learned because in my 20s i don't know about you but i found friendship really easy and i was mm. living with five girlfriends and we spent every weekend together and it just felt easy in a way that romantic love didn't romantic love was mm. the, the 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 shit show and friendships was this easy beautiful thing and then in my 30s I have had to understand that friendship requires a lot more conscious effort mm -hmm. and that there's no natural consistency in them anymore so you have to find a way to almost force the consistency um, mm. and if you don't sort of recognize that then it can be easy to get things to let things slip but I suppose like the biggest thing I have learned is that when you love each other as friends sometimes you will have to tolerate that distance in your friendship mm. and accept it and try to find other ways to be to keep being honest with each other mm. and I guess it, I guess the, the real skill is understanding when to accept the distance and when to fight to repair it mm. and I think you feel you can feel that if you're honest with yourself I, I'd love to still, in moments, live with my five best friends at uni and share each other's clothes and live in each other's pockets and wake up in the morning and talk through our night out. And, it, and it's really difficult because life doesn't continue like that. But I think what um, the pandemic has really taught me is my friendship group is massively reduced. And that can feel quite weird. And I think social media feeds us this lie that everyone's got all these friends but the people, when when you've got no capacity left, which is when you know having a newborn, living through a pandemic, there's very few people that I can genuinely give myself to, as well as give it to my my immediate family. And so I, I think I feel quite comfortable with going. You know what? There's five, six people, maybe a couple more, who are the people that I will continue to to bother to text even when I come barely bothered to because they deserve that and they repeat it for me. But I don't think you kind of need to collect a huge amount of friends. That's quite a lot to keep up with, six and a close level, I think. <laughs> and no, I mean, it's a group, it's a group text. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say I definitely am aware that I'm somebody who gets quite stressed when a lot is on my plate and my natural tendency can be like, I'm too busy to see anyone, cancel everything, sort of withdraw. And what I have tried to get better at is, you know, I, one psychotherapist said to me, I think we're, this sort of like self-care, you know, look after yourself, stay in was a sort of big narrative for a long mm. time. And obviously that's really important, but I think it can get too easy to not socialize and not be friends yeah, and not go to things. I agree. And actually it's a less popular view, but she said to me, sometimes we have to say, this friendship is more important to me than my daughter, than my husband in this moment. I have mm. to, you know, it's all very well sometimes putting your heart partner first, sometimes, you sometimes have to put the friendship first. I and, can, okay. and I, you know, that requires, it's, it's hard if you're in a, um, if there's two of you as parents, because suddenly you are reliant on that other person. Like, mm. I hate the fact that a friend messaged me today and then I have to call my husband and say could you do this night I hate that horrible and but that is the fact of it and yeah. and you just have to really get better at a kind of like a boring like getting dates in ahead of time and getting organized with your time so boring but 
Hello, a quick break to tell you about a brand founded on what I think is a brilliant idea. It's called Whirly and it's a children's toy box subscription service. For a fixed monthly cost, you get access to what is basically a humongous toy box of toys. I'm talking really great brands too. There's Melissa and Doug, Plan, Wobbleboard, Strider Bikes, Oliver Jeffers books, to name but a few. You pick your selection of toys, Whirly delivers them, and then your kids play with them to their heart's content. And trust me, they've made a selection of stuff which is really robust and can't be broken, even by the most feisty kids. Then when they're done with them, you can send them back and Whirly will exchange them for another selection of things and so on and so on. So you've got a constantly changing selection of toys in your house. How clever is that? It's really easy. It gives you way more for your money. It reduces the dreaded living room clutter. And of course, it's environmentally friendly too. And it feels particularly pertinent at this time of year. According to research conducted by Whirly, 23% of Christmas toys are neglected within one month, which translates to a whopping 32 million toys in the UK fated for landfills. And before they end up in landfills, they're actually cluttering our homes. In my house, some things are even dismissed as early as Boxing Day. So, given all that, Whirly makes a really, really smart solution. It's a chance for kids to play with a huge range of toys and for us not to have to worry about which bits do and don't capture their imagination because if they don't like them, they can just go back. If all that sounds good to you, then how about giving Whirly a go? I've actually got a code for you, which is Clemmy 30 which will give you 30% off a Whirly subscription or on Whirly gift cards if you wanted to buy some for someone else. And you'll also find me chatting to Whirly founder Nigel Fan on IGTV. We chat about how he came up with the business idea, how it came to market, and also a general, more sustainable approach to toys at Christmas, but also toys in general. So go check that out. And I mean, this feels like a cop out, but it is how I justify quite a lot. I really, really, really want my children to have valuable friendships. And so you have to model them. I want them to know that those four, however many people, are hugely significant and, and and relationships that I invest in, and so I'm yeah I I feel quite confident in modelling that. But it's also in yourself, as you say, it's a, exactly like date nights. Like we're going to go out that night, and then you get there, you're like, oh, can't be bothered. But you have you do have to be bothered. I think most of stuff in life, the easy option isn't necessarily the right one. And it's. I was just thinking about this this morning and one of my friends just had a baby and I was thinking well I'll take Joni and I was like if I take Joni I'm not going to speak to her I'm not going to be looking at her and I kind of felt I have been away a lot and my partner's been taking on a lot of the childcare because um, I was uh, just away and so there's a bit of me that's thinking oh can I ask him again and I just feel like we need this weekend and I was like you know what it's two hours I'm just going to go without her because that two hours will mean so much for my friendship and it, and will sustain it for the for the next yeah. period. So yeah, it's all these just it's interesting. The same psychotherapist said to me when I asked like why do why do most of relationships that she sees goes wrong, and mm. she said it is a lack of freedom, and yeah. and and that when we begin a relationship or especially if we have a child you don't realize actually how much personal freedom you're giving up because you do have to do what I've just said, negotiate with your partner. And, mm. um, and the beautiful thing about friendships is you do have so much freedom. Mm. And, and that is, 
why they can feel wonderful and amazing but it also means there's less of a sort of societal structure in place and you have to then force that to be a priority because the structure won't do it if that makes sense that's so true yeah and I guess we're all given this idea that friendships just happen we breeze through life with our friendships and and that doesn't and also I've only ever fallen out twice with people like broken up friendships and man that is hard because it's not like you when you break up a relationship a romantic relationship there's a fine end but we can kind of often trickle along with relationships but both of these were quite big incidents that led to the breakup and I would constantly felt weird about it because it's it's again it's a kind of a grief it's kind of yeah it's a breakup but yeah there's nowhere to kind of go with that it's not somewhere you can kind of seek solace or while you're in a bad patch you've broken up with a friend I mean it feels it's rubbish and it's less clear like you don't have a moment when it's the the labels or whatever are severed and you think that's over it can often be yeah yeah I haven't I've had friends drift but I haven't had I haven't had a friendship breakup so I can't imagine so both of mine in both incidents the friends had done something pretty terrible and then the way they not not directly to me actually but the way they behaved afterwards but interestingly with both of them one of them four years down the line and the other one two years down two or three years down the line I then we did end up being back in touch and kind of not in a view to being friends again, but in a view to saying, I hope you're doing all right. Good luck, which felt really nice because, yeah, because that's the thing, even with any of my ex-boyfriends, to be honest, I still want the pe- the people to do well just because you're no longer, yeah, in the group of people that I love day to day. I don't want any badness for you. And it's nice to know that there's... that you can not have a relationship but you don't have to have that I sort of you. lingering yeah mean feeling there no I agree because I don't think that's any good for anyone unless you've been obviously in at the tail end of some kind of abusive relationship of course but yeah I think people change life happens does it and people make mistakes I guess so you have to allow that for well, maybe I'm heading for a friend maybe I'll get dumped soon who knows oh yeah but you also get that you get that interesting thing so I don't drink I feel like I always bring this up and I feel like that shifted a few of my friendships and you know I suspect I haven't been invited to things and it and it's easy to get in a spiral with yourself about that and in the same way with chasing romantic love but also just have to just allow people to do what they want to do and maybe I don't want to be maybe I wouldn't enjoy it if I was invited anyway so maybe they're trying to do me a favor in the long run but it's really difficult navigating friendship and the idea that we meet people at school or university and then stay completely close in that again it's just I think that there are versions of us that emerge and there are versions of other people that emerge and we have to kind of keep trying to tell each other who we are and find out who they are. Yeah. And actually, sometimes when you do that, you feel that you don't... I mean, I was thinking the way that I um, know a good friendship is when I come away from it, when I walk away from seeing that friend, and it is like being recharged, and it is yeah. you just feel on a high. Mm. Um, and if you come away from somebody and you're, you're not feeling like that, or you're a bit... You know, I, I had a friend when I was younger, I feel a bit scared by her. 
have you ever yeah. had that and you you sort of t- t- anything like that now I just am happy to let that drift well and actually as you say when you've had to negotiate that's how I rationalize if I have to choose between being with my kids or seeing this friend it better be a great friendship to be worth you know choosing my kids for but yeah those horrible friendships where you you feel a bit wobbly afterwards or you regret what you said or you yeah. Or you feel you've always done the wrong thing. I feel with my good friends, I could do the worst. I could be awful. Well, and yeah, and then you, you just speak to them. And you're like, I was awful. And they're like, yeah, you were. And then you just move past it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, yeah. That's, I guess, the benefit of longer term friendships, I suppose, when you've got enough Because comp- I think all of this is about being confident with the vulnerability and knowing that they love you kind of for who you are, not what you do. Um, but that involves a real bit of vulnerability I suppose and there's only very few people who I would ring when things very were really really bad um, and they're the ones and again that's I think the lens of the pandemic and the newborn phases the people that I can say help or I'm having a terrible time with they're your people I think and of course I have other friends would be my party friends or that I like to do casual stuff with but you know the friends that I love I think are those for me it's also been about accepting that not every friend has to know all of who I was and maybe Mm. in the early days of newborn certainly because I've been on the other side when I have friends who don't have children or indeed a lot of my friends struggling to have kids I'm not gonna meet up with them and talk about that side of my life but that also means that there's a big side of my life, well, 80% of it that I'm not sharing. And yes. and that can feel strange when you have shared absolutely everything. But really, and, and it kind of scared me, but really I found it's so wonderful to be able to like inhabit a part of myself that's not to do with motherhood. And that doesn't mean that they, that that friendship is not close and intimate. It's just that it's a different part of you that you're mm. connecting with. And I have been very grateful for that. And it's almost that's, like they see mm. parts of me that maybe I lost and they bring them back out again. That's really interesting, actually, because I think that might be a confused notion from those days of friendships when you were in each other's pockets, where you literally knew what you'd have for breakfast, who you'd snuggled, all of it, who, when you got in your trousers. But yeah, knowing you can just give you a little bit. I, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes I just want to be this version of me for this moment because that's a real joy, actually, because you have to give so much of yourself in, the, in other spaces. That's a good observation. And I have, it was difficult for me, actually, and I had written about this in the book, meeting friends who I'd been so close to and realising I do not know your children and it's so strange because this is the center of your world and I I can't remember how old they are or you know anything about them exactly and they don't know me either and you and you have that slight eerie thing because they look a bit they look like your friend so you're like you're you're that little face staring back at me is really on the one hand quite familiar but on the other hand just the no one to me yeah it's really like who is this person you're like i am very important to your mum yeah she's very important to me but it i just have become much more relaxed about except you know not seeing that as a sign that we're not friends we've lost our friendship just as inevitable sign of of living different lives and Mm. and it doesn't have to 
yeah, it doesn't scare me, I suppose, as much as it used to. And it's interesting hearing you talk because I was kind of the opposite end of the scale. I was the first one of my friends to have kids. And I've it was a dreadful time. I mean, it was amazing to have my son, but I felt so disconnected and just couldn't. We were living such different lives. And, and now, fortunately for me, they've gone on to have kids and we've reconnected. But it was very... It's it's funny. I guess it's an important message to the overall conversation. You know, you can be in a, in a relationship and be looking at single people and wishing it was there. And when you're single, you're looking at the relationships when you've got kids and you haven't. Um, we always have got this idea of what what versions of love other people are living, and the chances are, it is of course, it's not anywhere near the Hollywood version, is it? Yeah, and actually, if you can both find a way to share your vulnerabilities about those different setups and that's kind of how you stay close because yeah I certainly was very much consumed by my own uh, misery and not understanding somebody having problems in their relationship needed help or, or like you say somebody being a new mother and was really lonely in a very different way to the way I was lonely mm. but no less real um in that moment yeah I was I was terrible I was terrible in <laughs> but we all are we've all been utterly consumed with our own obsession and it's as you say it's that strange thing as you said about when you're consumed with parental love and the romantic love that you obsessed about for years is like this irrelevant thing in the background it's mad isn't it how your brain can be so locked in and then you get it and if only I always think that you know the time when I used to await my husband's text and then I look at our text conversations now and it's one word what times pick up or don't forget the swimming kit you're like wow how did this come to that where I yeah used to just give me such joy to receive a text from but Esther Perel talks about it it's very we're very conflicted between this idea of comfort versus excitement and it's very hard to to have them both and they're both very valuable but yeah it's naive to think that it can necessarily come hand in hand Mm. Uh, yeah although I would say I have found I I suppose it kind of comes back to what we're saying about friendship of like not knowing the whole side of you but I did used to think that that comfort of love came from knowing every inch of another person and I think for me because I'd spent so long pretending in love and not being myself relationships Mm -hmm. I was so happy to be in a relationship where I thought I could tell you completely anything and you tell me anything we know everything about each other and now I really understand a lot more that you never really know everything about another person because you you know there's still ways in which I react that I'm surprised by I think oh am I insecure about that (laughs) who knew um and there are still (laughs) some things that my partner will do where I will look and think wow that's a new side of you that I never seen that's sort of in there and I'm still getting to know and for me that's where the um the pushback against the comfort and the and the Mm. sort of drudgery of it is paying more attention to the newness and feeling like I find that thrilling um and and yeah my husband had like my husband's very, he comes across quite serious in the book, but he's quite jokey and silly. And he, um, when I was in the real like depths of uh, newborn stage, he has sort of written this poem about 
a woman like losing herself and that and it was like she'll find herself again in time or something it was really beautiful I I was like who who wrote this where did it come from Um, and I I do know that that is in him but it just reminded me of it and Mm. I think paying attention to those little parts of relationship is yeah where you can find the thrill and the mystery yeah, there's two things there. Um, my friend Steph, who runs Don't Buy Her Flowers, talks about in newborn and again in the pandemic, when you're so close to each other, as in physically close, basically, you it's very difficult to kind of see someone. And actually sometimes it's that thing when you, you go out in a bigger group and you suddenly are able to see your partner as a person, not just a person in your house all the time. And they say something, you're like, oh, right. there's that person I think it's really important I guess that is possibly into the freedom that you sometimes need physical space to to observe them because it it's the the boundaries but but also there's a part in the book where you you talk about like the small acts of love and someone talked about um the husband putting the husband putting toothpaste on their toothbrush every day this is Sarah who's my editor at Red oh yeah yeah Sarah and Sarah um and I thought again it's mad isn't it once upon a time when I started my relationship, my husband making me a cup of, now husband, making me a cup of tea in bed was like the most romantic thing. And then sadly, you get to the point where like, where's my cup of tea? And it's, <laughs> and, and you, it's really important to try and remember those things, I think. And to find new versions of them, yes. perhaps as well. Yeah, that's maybe it, isn't it? And I, I do, I think the version, the thing that I put in there is if I'm in a news agent on the way home I will just buy his mm. favorite chocolate bar or something I, it, mm. it's as stupid as that isn't it but it's yeah and Esther who, who I know that you, you love her work but the thing she said that really changed for me is if you say you love somebody her next question is how do you show it mm. so if you feel that love like we will often say in the day we would be thinking about the other person and then but you ne- you might not send a message you might not tell them and then when you get home, you just snap about something and you never. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you have that feeling, it's like, how do you act? What's the little way that what's you're going to demonstrate just so that they can see the intention? It's nothing to do with mm. the chocolate bar, obviously. It's no. them knowing that you have been in a random situation and have thought of them. Yeah. Yeah, because we all want to be thought of because we all want to be loved. And it's so true because that's. Again, the reality of life, those moments like at the end of work or at first thing in the morning, especially once you've got kids in the mix, become so tense that you haven't got the, the room that you might have once done. But yeah, it's really, it's a bit like the conversation around self-care. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Sometimes it is getting an early night and having a glass of water. And sometimes it is just sending, it doesn't have to be flowers or dinner. It can be sending a message saying, I thought of you or which you do do in the early stages and you do it with your friends. This is the problem. You end up pouring so much into colleagues and friends and, yeah, and spend inspired, inspired to be nicer to my husband. <laughs> yeah, note on the kitchen counter. Anything. Yeah. Um, but yes. and I, I, when you, I feel like when you sort of change, like I guess everything that we're talking about is changing this understanding of love as this, feeling that happens to you and you fall and it's there and then you just sort of forget about it because it ticks along and when you do understand that it's just a choice you make every day and maybe you cannot make it for a few days mm. and and let it and it, you can feel it sort of slide but you you can't not choose it for too many days because then like something builds up between you and it just gets harder and harder to mm. 
break it down. I think like the stuff of life is just always threatening, like with friends, with siblings, with partners. It's just threatening to build up between you all the time. And these little chocolate bars or, or whatever it is, it's just a ways of just chipping at that thing all the time, I think. Yeah, and it's such a good lesson. I've become a person, I, like, I think I wasn't brought up in a house where we said I love you an awful lot. But I throw that around. I mean, I tell my kids it all the time. But I say it to my friends and, and to Ben. Like, I, and then I think, oh, is this a bit much? You know, buying stuff for mates, doing this, doing that. But my word, it's better to have been the person that's showered people in love. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. I hope. Yeah, and also it's fun, isn't it? For yeah, you as well. Nice. Yeah, it's really nice. As you say, buying that chocolate bar is and it's, it's just... Yeah, it's what it's about. I really completely agree. Coming back to what we were talking at the beginning, you know, that I do now think that loving somebody else is as rewarding, if not more so. Well, no, maybe as rewarding as being loved. And um, there's a conversation in the book with Heather Havrileski, who writes an Ask Polly column. I don't know if you read it. for, um, And now she's taken it to Substack. But she um, she was talking about her husband kind of grumbling about his back and so I can't remember his back or neck but he grumbled about his back she had a bad neck but she's quite tough so she doesn't moan about it mm. and um she said if she would think about saying to him I don't moan about my pain so you shouldn't that's like the death of love because actually this little grumbling about his back is part of like how he gets through the day and it's actually a quirk or a funny thing that's mm. part of like she calls it like the strange poetry in in in, oh, in yeah. his play of life or whatever and she said if we can kind of take all the complexity and all the quirks and all the funny weird bits of another person and see them as this beautiful unfolding messy thing that's more beautiful than like a pristine person or pristine thing actually mm. loving another person in that way is also what it means to live a happy life to look at your own life and all the messy awkward odd funny bits and see that as more beautiful than a pristine life and the way she talked about loving someone I was like oh what a what a a gift for want of a you know that's a cheesy way to say it but yeah isn't it remarkable loving another person and making space for their vulnerability and helping them to bring out the best bits in themselves Yes, it is. I say this because my husband does a thing where when, he's, when we were sick, he's like, oh, God. He kind of says to himself, oh, gosh, oh, oh. Like, he does this, and I was like, it drives me crazy. Like, just, you've got this, like, monologue that you're sort of making all these sounds. And then I was like, oh, God, I would miss those sounds so yeah. much if they weren't there. And actually, it's really funny. And Yeah, and it's so true. And it it's also ties back to... Often the, the quirks that you fall in love with become the bits that annoy you. And if you could go back to the bit, they, yeah, try and remember that they're quirks and you're right. And, and, and the same with parents. You know, sometimes my mum will do, like, yeah. I, she All always says, like, I'll give you a tip when I'm cooking. I'll give you a tip. I was like, just tell me what you want me to do. Stop saying I'll give you a tip. And I, I oh, often no. think if she's not there, I'm sure in my head I'll be trying to tip. hear that sound of her saying that. And just, yeah. It's really true. It's really true. It's all about these nuances. I'm getting teary. This is classic, isn't it? It's yeah. It's a, 
it's really, I mean, there's no, I'm a bit lost for words. This is what life is all about. It's no surprise, is it? This is the stuff. It isn't, it isn't all plain sailing and it isn't all easy, but the bumpy, difficult bits are actually the bits. That is the whole point. And then you get to enjoy the the smoother bits occasionally, but sitting through the uncomfortable bits is, is what makes love love, I think. And I approached the project naively now and hoping I could learn every trick and every tip and everything so I would then be loving and be a great friend and be a great wife and a great mother and all these things and I finished the book understanding that those periods of disconnection or struggle and Mm. how we try to reach each other in the moment like the love isn't what you lose in those moments the love is actually in the decision to keep reaching each other through them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like like with me and my friend, you know, I was saying, when you feel that, when you feel somebody else trying to reach you and you reach them, it's, it's um, beautiful. Yeah, it's very special. This is so, I'm, I'm sorry, it's so hard to talk about this without sounding uh, cheesy, but now I'm, I'm, I'm happy to sound cheesy because... Uh, <laughs> well, that's it, that's it, because if we, if we go, oh, that's a bit cringe, but you're doing yourself a massive disservice. It's the whole thing. All of us really want to be loved. So, of and course, yet, we need to. And yet, we overlook it all. The, it, it's, we, of course, we do want that. And I think on some level, we know how important it is to us. But I don't think that our actions always reflect that knowledge. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is just provide reminders for all of us and myself to act in a way that does, um, that honours how we feel about it. I mean, I feel very inspired and I feel very, yeah, I I, I feel kind of emotional about it, but of course I do. I've got, I would actually like to keep talking to you all afternoon about love, but that doesn't really add up to the rest of our lives. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to, to round up. I mean, I didn't really feel like I'd ask you I always have these questions and then I just chat, Um, but that's okay. Um, Where can people find you and give us a proper shout out for your wonderful book? Well, um, so Conversations on Love is an ongoing newsletter and you can find it if you follow me um, on Instagram, it's conversations underscore on underscore love um, and there's a link to sign up to the newsletter in the bio. Um, and I've got some amazing guests coming up, so that's very exciting. And yes, the book is out in hardback now with Viking, Penguin, and it's available wherever you get your books. Well done. And in, in the theme of the podcast, which is Honest Conversations, if you could have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be and what would you say? I would, and this is a bit, um, this is a bit emotional, but I know that you're open to this. So I... Um, did write in the book about my grandmother who lost a toddler very sadly in in a in a pram that collapsed oh my word and um i never we never spoke about it in our family no one spoke about it obviously there were no bereavement support groups and i i often think now maybe it was too late by the end because she had kind of dementia and by by the time i was i guess old enough to consider this um, but I really wish that I had spoke to her about that and asked her just about her daughter's life and, and mm, who and, that person was. Yeah, and, and gave her a chance to maybe remember her. Um, 
So, yeah. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. Oh, God, you're poor granny. That's, yeah. That's and, but beyond you, tragic. You don't... It's just so hard for us to understand in that generation yeah. how, how they there was no it. room. There was no room mm. to, to speak about it. Oh, well, on that... Sorry to end on a... But it's truthful. Yeah. It's truthful. I know you, you Yeah, like... I love that. I, lo- I love that. Well, yeah, thank you so much. It's been an absolutely gorgeous conversation. And thank you for your book. I don't say that lightly. I've pushed it on so many people. I'm a, and once in a while, I get really obsessed with the book. And yours is it. And um, I think it's wonderful. And I think it's the sort of book that I'll go back to over and over again, depending on, on different things. But as I said to you, or I said on the internet... The, the premise sounds brilliant in itself, but the a real skill is the questions that you ask. I think they're phenomenal. You're very gifted. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And enjoy, hopefully, a little phase of wellness now. Oh, I'm crossing my <laughs> can, fingers. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't bank on it for too long. It is really brutal, the first bit of nursery. It's like, are you serious? Are we doing this again? But then eventually it plateaus and they've got some kind of immune system. We're just, laughing. Think... We're just laughing our way through it. I think that's how you, that's how you get through it. And I think these lot of kids have been, because of the pandemic, they've kind of been not exposed to as much immunity as they might have done in day-to-day life. I know, my, my husband obviously works in a primary school, so we get some other bugs from there. Oh yeah, you've got a few coming your way, <laughs> yeah. They're really grimy too, really, really grimy. <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, that made me feel very warm inside. It made me feel very appreciative for all the love that I have in my life, and particularly, I guess, for my husband, which, when you're almost 11 years married and 14 years, God, together, you can take for granted. So I think the, the bit that I'll most take away is to remember that romantic love through the same lens that I understand parental love, which is it can be tough and challenging and can send you to some unpleasant places but that isn't a reflection of whether it's something that you want to keep going with because it's a given that you should keep going with it and also to continue to tell my friends that I love them. I hope you enjoyed it too. I really do, as I made very clear, recommend that you buy Natasha's book and a big thank you to her for being here today and for you for joining me as ever. I appreciate any ratings, reviews, or shares on social media. That that makes a massive difference. Um, also, would love to hear from you. There's a train going past. I'm just going to stop. Come on. Um, if you've got any feedback on the podcast, I'd love to hear that on butwhy at kemitelford.com. I'm now off to wrap a present. My best mates have all started turning 40. In fact that either last weekend and the coming weekend my two best friends turned 40 which is absolutely mad we celebrated our 20th birthdays together and then our 30th um, and I'm more grateful for them with every decade so I'm going to go and get wrapping wishing you a lovely day and catch up with you next week bye bye